with you again. I am, as introduced by Adam, I'm Dave Vindewall. I'm <clears throat> a retired um, teaching elder in this denomination. My wife and daughter and I are members here at Covenant, and I'm part-time uh, office administrator. <clears throat> Here's some, too. And I'm always glad to fill in when um, John or Alex are gone. And I realized I don't have my copy. Hold on. Our text this morning is from the book of Hebrews. From I'm going to read two places. First three verses of the whole book in Hebrews 1 and then uh, two more verses from chapter 10. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Thank you, Father, again for your word, sure and certain, in times of trouble. We take it to heart. We ask, Lord, that you, uh, by your spirit, would strengthen us with it. This would all be for your glory and for our good, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. To get us thinking this morning, I um, want to imagine that you are somewhere in Pittsburgh, downtown, and you're getting ready to cross a busy street across the intersection, and as you step off the curb into the crosswalk, <clears throat> you notice a bit in the distance a big red Dodge Ram Hemi pickup truck <clears throat> with blacked out windows a ways away. But it's coming directly towards you, and so you walk a, <clears throat> a little bit faster, but the truck truck changes direction too, tracking with you, still coming towards you. And so you panic a little bit and, and you step back up on the curb and you notice he changes direction, still coming right at you. In fact, his front tire is now up on the curb headed for you. Well, you decide to beat him and so you run back into the crosswalk, but he does the same thing headed right for you. And so you go a few steps back and he tracks the same way, still coming at you. Back and forth, you both go. And finally, you freeze in panic in the middle of the intersection, and the truck screeches right up to you, stopping just inches from you. And your heart is pounding, and you think, what is going on? What's wrong with him? And you move around slowly to the driver's side, and the window goes down, and you see that a squirrel is driving, and he says, 
It isn't as easy as it looks, is it? That, in a way, is what was going on with the people in our text this morning. <clears throat> they were recent converts. They were Jewish converts to Christianity, and it's been relatively recent. And they've been now persecuted by their own people. And they're starting to realize <clears throat> Christianity isn't as easy as it looks. And so as we approach the book of Hebrews, we need, if we can, to try to put ourselves, if possible, into the mindset and the culture of late first century Judaism. It's a little hard to put ourselves deeply into their sandals because we live in a time now of cell phones, air conditioning, TVs, computers, internet, fast food, medical advances, very short travel times. You can be almost anywhere in the world in a relatively short period of time. But the gospel is universal in its effect, but it's always given and received in a particular culture. We were uh, missionaries for 12 years or so in Japan and had lots of opportunity to <clears throat> talk to other missionaries. We would go to seminars and training and be with missionaries from around the world and hear their stories. And I think it's true that different countries have different characteristics. <clears throat> Americans tend to be cowboy mentality, pioneer, independent outlook, but can be very um, self-centered. Uh, Japanese people tend to maintain harmony and peace at all costs, no confrontation, and so they tend to compromise. A missionary I met to France, Mark Mayhew, I remember him saying that the French people <clears throat> have a nonchalant, uncaring, disinterested spirit. And we had a German man on our team in Japan, a missionary from Germany to Japan with us, and he said Germans, we Germans tend to be cold and practical <clears throat> and proof-oriented. Well, all of these different people and places and things are just symptoms, as it were, of a bigger problem, and that is a deep, we all have a deep, inherent, organic, living color, sin nature. Yes, there are cultural differences, <clears throat> but we're all sinners. Well, this morning in the book of Hebrews, we're looking at one uh, cultural subset of people in our text, and these are Jewish converts. They are new to Christianity. They, they heard the gospel from the apostles, not from Christ himself, uh, at the writing of the book of Hebrews, which is 95 to 97 AD. Jesus' death is now some 60 years ago. Well, as Jews, they were not unfamiliar with persecution. It was ingrained in them uh, as a people throughout their history. <clears throat> but now, for the first time ever, it was taking a new turn. They were new converts to Christianity. They had placed their faith and trust in Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah. And in so doing, they had placed themselves at odds with their leaders and the establishment and their whole culture, which 
clearly did not see Christ as the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. And so now these new converts are being expelled from the normal everyday parts of life, Jewish life. They're being excluded from the places and the things. And beyond that, not just places and things, but the values and the beliefs uh, which made them Jewish. They felt that they were being torn from their culture. And when that happens, that feels like death. So persecution is now coming from their very own people. And they're beginning to question their becoming Christians at all, uh, questioning what have I done by throwing my lot in with this unconventional, sometimes strange man, Jesus? Maybe we acted a little too quickly, they're thinking. Maybe it was just the emotion and the passion of a moment. And they're thinking, maybe this is a much bigger thing than I thought. Maybe I made a mistake. <clears throat> and so they're considering abandoning it. And the writer of Hebrews wrote this whole letter for such people. And he wants them to see that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. You didn't make a mistake. He is the once for all, all powerful and effective sacrificial lamb of God. He is the great high priest who entered the Holy of Holies and provided purification for sin never to be repeated. And to prove it all, he sat down. The father said, I accept your atonement. My wrath is appeased. My justice is satisfied. Sit down and keep your seat. He sat down. Well, <clears throat> thinking about persecution, in, in a big sense, it really is unknown to us in America compared to the rest of the world. Um, it's extremely easy to make a commitment to Christ. It really doesn't cost much compared to, say, um, in China or Muslim countries. And as we're thinking about this, I think we can say that um, real persecution has a threefold effect on a church body. First, it weeds out the dead wood. Secondly, it causes a rethinking of one's decision. And thirdly, it, in fact, strengthen, strengthens the body. So first, weeds out the dead wood. Because if it were illegal to be a Christian and punishable by a hefty fine, would you stay? You can make up a number. Uh, what if it cost dollars <clears throat> $50,000 a year to practice Christianity? You say you're going to be a... a public follower of Jesus Christ, that's fine, here's your bill. Comes out of your taxes up front if you don't have a tax category, you, they come to your house and they get it, but 25,000. <clears> or worse than that, say it's uh, five years in prison. So we show up for public worship or just say somewhere, somehow that we're followers of Christ and we're arrested and taken to jail. And when you get out, the next time you go to the next service, you're rearrested five more years. Or worse, and this is true in some countries, death to any convicted Christians. If that was the case, would you stay? If 
Point being, if such laws were enacted, most church roles would go down, not up. So it tends to weed out the dead wood, the people that came for wrong reasons. Well, secondly, persecution has the effect of causing a rethinking of one's decision. There's a question. What, why did you become a Christian anyway? Was it for relief from a problem <clears throat> which had been plaguing you? Uh, was it because others were doing it and you decided to, too? Persecution has a way of, of cutting through all of that and getting to the real problem. And we read what that was in verse 3. Verse 3 tells us why you need to become a Christian. You need purification from sin. Now, many believers' motives are surely mixed and impure when they first come. Uh, mine were. But God will get us around to this point and the point is, we need an atoning sacrifice for sin in order to be put right with God. And persecution sometimes acts as a fast track to get us to this truth. This is something to look for if you're feeling persecuted in your faith. <clears throat> Why did I come? I need my sin forgiven. Well, thirdly, Persecution strengthens the body spiritually. It brings a um, proper resolve, uh, sobriety, and it helps to bypass some of the silliness and frivolity uh, in the church today. It helps us to focus on why we're here, and that's to advance his kingdom and to, as our confessions and Documents say to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's the point of being here. When you have your sins forgiven, there's a kingdom to advance. So persecution strengthens the body spiritually by bringing a certain resolve and um, <clears throat> sincerity that wouldn't maybe otherwise be there. The hearers of this letter had become used to the trappings of their faith with all the rituals and feasts that went along with it. And it felt right, and it felt good to them. This is how you do religion. Uh, they knew, we could say it this way, they knew where the handles were to get hold of religion. But here, with the coming of Christ, that gets exposed for what it was. <clears throat> all the feasts and rituals were lacking and incomplete, and the writer wants to point them again to a better sacrifice, one that is permanent, lasting, better than Moses, even. So the writer is saying, don't let persecution distract you. Don't get off course. And the main means that the writer of this book uses to do this is to write throughout the whole book um, a profound and a deep description and an exposition of Jesus Christ as prophet, priest, and king. In, in, in essence, what he did was he turned their eyes to Jesus, the author and perfecter of their faith, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, the one who made a sacrifice that actually holds 
inside the veil, and because it holds inside the veil, it is unaffected by persecution. <clears throat> persecution has sidetracked you, he's saying, into considering rejecting the very thing that saves you. So listen again. <clears throat> In the past, Long ago, in the past, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Through him also he created the world. <clears throat> the writer starts by saying that those who come to Christianity would naturally enough compare their newfound faith with the richness of their Jewish heritage. They would see some kind of disconnect of God's people, after all. But the writer sets out right away to show the greater richness of their Christian position in Christ. So at every stage of the argument, here in our text, but all the way through all 13 chapters of the book, the keynote idea, the base of all of this is their new faith is better. Just point of application, I trust that you know that this morning, that God, by grace, has given you, in Christ, the very best there is. You need to get hold of that. If you're wavering this morning for whatever reason, if you're even on the fence as to whether this Christianity stuff is for you at all, I tell you, on the authority of God's word, it is worthy. And so embrace it today if you never have. And if you are a believer but you're wavering, latch on again to these truths. Notice too what the writer asserts in the first few words of the book, of the whole book, the first things he says is God has spoken. And he doesn't set out to prove it so much as he just asserts it. He says it. The letter to the Hebrews has no meaning or no relevance to anyone who doesn't believe and accept the fact that God has spoken to man. And likewise, the whole Bible has no meaning for anyone who doesn't believe that God has spoken. Isn't that really one of the most profound thoughts, if you think about it? The most profound thought that there is? God has spoken. He used real words, and he communicated propositional truth, it has actual content and meaning. He has spoken. Now, atheists, the other extreme would say there is no God. Others would acknowledge, well, there's a God, but he's mystical and he takes many forms and it's kind of how you want to interpret him. And then even in the, inside the door of the Christian camp, there are some radical Christians or liberal Christians who say he's real. Yes, he's real. And he spoke. Yes, he spoke. But you can't really know what he said <clears throat> and what he meant because the scriptures have a lot of myth and mistakes in it. But we affirm he is God and he is real and he has spoken and you can know, and in a word, it's Jesus. And so we are 
thus affirming not just the existence of God, yes, of course, but the communication of God. He has spoken. <clears throat> and by the way, when you're know, talking about believing the Bible or not, or does it have errors or myths, how do you think of yourself in relation to the Bible? And by that I mean some holding the Bible. Do you see the Bible as below you, something that you make the judgment calls on, you read it, and, but you make the decisions? Or are you equals? You have a co-relationship with the Bible. You both have things to say and you give and take. That's better than number one. The second one is still not good enough. It must be above you. It must speak down to you in authority and comfort and peace. You must look up and accept it <clears throat> for the word of God. Not only that, but the, the writer is assuming what we call, if you look at those first few verses, we're assuming something called the progress of redemption. It's an unfolding of the covenants and an unfolding and an expanding of the truth of God in the scriptures. So he is, because of that, he is not saying that the speaking in the past of visions and dreams and stuff was wrong by any means. He's not at all saying that. <clears throat> He's saying that past revelation is indeed revelation. That's closed now that Christ has come. Christ's life and work reads all of the meaning back into the past actions and revelations by God. In fact, the whole meaning of the book of Hebrews is lost if the past is ignored. God spoke to our Jewish forefathers through prophets at many times and in various ways. <clears throat> they heard that and these Jewish Christians would have quickly uh, filled in the details. Visions, dreams, angelic visitations, revelations of <clears throat> God and, and, and then prophetic words and events, the, the prophets, the whole of old, all Old Testament history really is in view here. And the prophets are mentioned specifically as the revelation in, unfolded. Prophets were those that were set apart by God to authorita authoritatively say, thus saith the Lord. And they were often mistreated but they persisted because they had a sure word from God as the revelation of truth unfolded over the ages. So what they said in the visions and dreams and all the other things <clears throat> were powerful and true, but was in a sense incomplete, not wrong, incomplete. They were all waiting for and pointing to Christ. So the Old Testament is full authoritative revelation. It's not a closed dispensation that's over and now no longer has a voice and it's just how to be a, a better person type stories. No, <clears throat> there is no difference in authority of the Old Testament and the New. Both are fully authoritative. So the writer wants him to see something. In the past, God had spoken vision-wise, he had spoken angel-wise, he had spoken prophet-wise, and he had spoken dream-wise, <clears throat> but now, now 
He has spoken sunwise. He has spoken to us by the giving of his dear own son. And it was for a purpose, the putting away of sin. And it is what Christ did in his person and work is complete. It is unassailable because we are assured he sat down. So the writer here um, teaches the deity of the son by using a different translations. I'm looking now at, um, if you're looking at your text or in the bulletin of our text, I'm looking in verse 3 where it says, he, Jesus, is the, the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint. That's two words in English. The one word in Greek is character, which is a transliteration that we read character <coughs> of his nature. And what he's talking about, and then other translations say exact representation, um, express image. Um, RSV says the very stamp of his nature. And so when RSV uses the word stamp and ESV in our text uses the word imprint, it's getting at the meaning of that word in Greek of character. <clears throat> and what it means, you shouldn't, shouldn't really think of so much as a word printed by a word processor today. The, the writer was thinking more of a warm uh, wax dripped on a letter and pressed with a signet ring. And he's talking about that character, the print of, <clears throat> of that. So maybe a little bit more modern version. But if you, if you see the letter A, I'm thinking of a capital A, like that, if you see that stamped on a piece of paper, you know <clears throat> there's a rubber stamp somewhere that made that impression. Everywhere when the line goes up, you know that on the stamp, the thing that made it, that line goes up. And where it turns at the top and starts going down, so does that stamp turn and go down. And right where the bar goes across on the printed stamp on the paper, printed image on the paper, then that's called the character. You know that bar is also on the stamp, even if you haven't seen the stamp. So everywhere that the rubber stamp itself turns and bends, so does the image on the paper exactly and precisely. That's the concept of character, the word character. <clears throat> so the writer is saying, if you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. Jesus is the exact representation of God himself. The character or letter Jesus that you saw walking around or know of is exactly the same, the exact print, the exact reprint of the character or letter God. So, the writer wants them to see that the one that they're considering rejecting is, in fact, God. My wife became a Christian uh, about eight years <clears throat> before I did, and we often got into discussions and arguments over things of the Lord, and I was always belittling, in a nice way, her, her faith because I didn't want it to affect my life at all and so I thought if I could argue her down and silence the messenger 
that I had therefore silenced the message that she was giving me. How foolish I was. By way of illustration, imagine that when I drive, I keep a hammer on the front seat of my car, and when the oil pressure, pressure or a temperature light comes on, I get the hammer and I break the glass, I break the light and snuff out that light and go, that was close, but um, I fixed it, no problem. Well, all I did was to silence the messenger that was telling me of the message, but the problem was still there, was it not? All I did by doing that was postponing disaster. The writer is saying, don't reject the Christ. He is God's last and best. I wonder if you remember the, the game show, uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? The host was Regis Philbin, and he died a couple of weeks ago, made me think of this. But you know what he would always ask is, is that your final answer? And you, you could call somebody, you could poll the audience. Um, he had a couple of lifelines, they called it. <clears throat> um, so whatever they did, after they did or didn't and thought and carried on, he would finally say, they'd say, ah, it's B. And he would say, is that your final answer? Do you want to call? Do you want to hear what the audience thinks? The writer of Hebrews is telling us that Jesus is God's final answer. So we, as we start to <clears throat> close a bit, um, we should consider the fact what it means that he sat down and when it says he sat down on high of course that's referring to his exalted state in heaven it, this is the third of a three-step process there's resurrection there's ascension into heaven and it's now completed by his session we call it or seating or being seated the session of a church our elders is called the session and they are the elected or seated elders, the ones who oversee the work of the church, and they sit in session over the church in that sense of responsibility. So he sat down reflects the divine seal of acceptance of his work of purification, why he came, because Christ is now received back to the height from which he descended for our redemption. If he had not accomplished it, he couldn't come back in. This is really very pivotal and important for Martin Luther in his day. And he had to learn this lesson that if Christ has indeed made purification for sins, if Christ has done it and it's over and he sat down, and if that's true, there is no room for self-cleansing or self-justification on the part of man. That makes sense, right? He saw that Jesus having sat down destroys, obliterates any idea of our righteousness earning God's favor. He even said, and quote, he said, we must despair. We must give up, do away. We must despair of our own penance, our own earning, and our own purging of our sins. We need to despair of that. <clears throat> Get this, because even before we ever begin to confess, our sins have already been forgiven. You sit down and you kneel down and you're going to start to confess. They're forgiven because he's already sat down.
And he says, I'd go so far as to say, not until that moment have you seen the work of Christ in true penitence in us because it is in this way that his righteousness, the working of Christ, his righteousness works our righteousness or his righteousness makes our righteousness. You don't. And more recently, John Piper has said, the only sin you can work on in regard to confession or repentance is a forgiven sin. That makes sense, right? The only sin you can work on is to almost have an out-of-body experience, to look at it and work on it if it's forgiven. If it's not forgiven, you're crushed and consumed by it. So, my friends, he, he sat down. Have you committed a sin that you think is just too big? He sat down. Do you think you've asked forgiveness so many times that for your own good, he's going to teach you a lesson and he's going to say, nope, not this time. You've asked too much. You hear the same sin again? Nope, never. Because he sat down. Do you wonder sometimes in your secret, quiet moments if you'll ever make it to heaven? Forget that. No, you'll never make it to heaven. He will make it to heaven for you because he sat down. Are you suffering? You need to know something. He sat down. Now, these are not empty, pious platitudes. This is deep theology. He, he sat down. Every other priest had to get right back up and do it again and again the next week, the next month, and Day of Atonement every year going in. But this high priest, the better high priest, did it once and for all, and he sat down. Did you not get the job you wanted? He sat down. You get a bad medical report? He sat down. Did your romantic relationship just go sour? Sorry. But he sat down. He is in session over all these things. Jeremiah tells us about the, the master potter <clears throat> who forms the clay of your life and mine because he is the master potter. He is better than any other potter. Why? Because when he's through with his work and goes over to the sink and washes the mud and clay off his hands, something is revealed. Nail hole. That's a sign that he did something once. He made atonement, and he sat down. And that's whose hands your life is in. Those scars prove that he is uniquely qualified to be the master potter, and the scars prove something else. Bigger than that, his character overall is enough to be trusted. Do you trust his character this morning behind what he does and allows Things not going right in your life? He sat down. Future not clear? Well, why do you need to know? Uh, he sat down. Yes, we should plan, but not worry. He sat down. You have money problems? He sat down. Things might not come out like you thought. You thought you had it figured out. It's all right. He sat down. And so, my friends, we really should draw great comfort from this. The text says he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. 
And here, sort of packed in, but throughout the whole book of Hebrews, um, we see in these powerful verses the threefold character <clears throat> of the office of the Messiah, prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, Christ, is God's final word spoken to us. Priest, he went in, he did. He went into the Holy of Holies and made complete purification of sin. That's the work of a priest. And king, he sits enthroned now at the right hand of the majesty on high. Last thought, uh, we started with a squirrel, and now we're going to end with one, and this time it's a true story. Uh, the pastor under whom I interned for ordination told him they had a children's <clears throat> talk like when we gather together, we have a children's talk over here, and that church did that too. And he told of a children's talk he did one Sunday, and he wanted to tell the kids not to be discouraged and to press on in their faith, <clears throat> even if they'd made mistakes and forgotten things. So he was going to tell them that he had read that week, and I didn't know this, maybe you knew this, squirrels lose or can't find 80% of the acorns they hide. And so he said, um, to get them thinking about this, he said, uh, boys and girls, what's that gray, bushy-tailed little animal in the yard that runs around from tree to tree and gathering acorns? Well, there was the little boy who did the same thing every week, halfway into any question. His hand goes up. No matter what the question was, he hadn't heard the end of it yet, and he's got his hand up. Well, that Sunday he did it again, and no one else answered, so my friend George called on him. I said, yes, Billy, and he said, had a puzzled look of reluctant sort of puzzled look, and he said, I know the answer is Jesus, but it sure sounds like a squirrel. We might laugh at that, but in the end, I think he's right. In a big way, it doesn't matter what any difficult question might be, does it? The answer really is, in the end, Jesus, because he sat down. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you again for this wonderful truth that we see in your word, and how grateful are we again <clears throat> this morning that God has spoken. You have not left us in the dark. You have given us your very words. You've given us your word preserved for us in the scriptures, and we thank you for that this morning, and we ask that by your spirit <clears throat> you would press these things into our hearts again, just like the imprint of the signet into the wax, and you would press it into our hearts and lives that you can be trusted, that you have once and for all gone, gone into the holy place and made purification and atonement for our sins, and it's unassailable, and it's untouchable, and it's ours. <clears throat> so we ask that you would indeed encourage us with that again this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.